Frank, before we get into today's topic that is so hot and spicy, the hottest <laughs> thing ever in the world. But before we get into that, I have a question. I got a question for me that was asked to me on Twitter, and I want to ask you, Frank, because you and I are in the same boat because you and I both bought a laptop this year um, of interest. And this is the question. You ready for it, Frank? Oh, I, I'm nervous, but sure. Yeah. Random question. Hit me. And James, you both bought a brand new M1 MacBook Air this year. With Apple's recent announcements and on your podcast last week talking about the brand new M1 Pros and M1 Maxes, do you feel that you've made a grave mistake and wish that you could go back in time and remove it from the cart? <laughs> no. Nope, nope. Uh, I, I'm answering for myself here, but I'll also answer for you, James. No, you do not feel any remorse or anything like that. <laughs> it, look, the the M1 Pro, it's gorgeous. It's no no problem. And the M1 Max, the M1 Max Max, they're they're even better. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, no doubt there. And yes, I probably the thing if if I have any regret or remorse or anything, it's about the fact that it has more ports than mm. my little computer. <laughs> um, the the power increase that's good. I was complaining about Twitch and everything, but it's not that bad. Like Twitch was the only thing killing the poor computer. Everywhere else, it's been fine. So no no huge remorse. But but in two or three years, I'll probably two years well we'll see mark my words i i will be getting one eventually but no i don't have that much remorse right now okay yeah i i i'm, I'm there with you i have no remorse over this purse purchase and acquisition I'm, I'm very happy with my m1 macbook air i really enjoy it as like my main laptop that i carry around with me now realize that 99% of my time, I'm actually developing on a Windows desktop rig <laughs> that's super crazy powerful. And you yourself are on an iMac Pro, correct? Yeah, that that's my main where I sit my butt all day. <laughs> yes. And, and, and that's why it's okay. Because my main rig that's with me the majority of the time is not the MacBook Air M1, right? And if it was, no. I think that that would have been that. If I was replacing a 20... 15 or 26 macbook pro with a macbook air then yeah i might have been like oh but i don't think i would have done that uh in general right and 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 the thing that we really want the, the thing that you probably really want is an imac pro with an m1 yeah. max chip in it that's all specced out because to me this is my on the go device that i want nice and, and with me all the time i agree on the ports um i, I do I think we got bamboozled <laughs> on the ports um a little bit they're bringing back the ports. They could have just brought them back like you know five seconds earlier. But beyond that, I am happy, but I am with you. I think that my MacBook Air, because of the price and, of course, the discounting quotes that we got, which was really not a discount because we paid yeah. Apple $500 and they gave us $500 <laughs> back, you know, if we gave them more money than $500. Um, I do think that it won't last as long as my MacBook Pro, my 2013 did, because I was using that almost full time for five or six years. And uh, then it was just kind of, you know, done for. So I do think that, hey, in a two years from now, three years from now, am I going to be trading this MacBook Air in for whatever the new MacBook Pro is or new MacBook Air that has a Pro on it? Probably. I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you nailed that. I, I wasn't even thinking about that. Yeah, the reason I don't mind so much is because it's not my main dev machine, not to repeat everything you just said, but I've been lucky that I'm able to sit down in front of a computer all day. Um, I think 
if I were, I don't know. Well, I was even gone for a month away from my big iMac and still the air was fine. So yeah. if you have one, I think you're fine. If you don't have one, then now's just a good time to upgrade upgrade to the pro. Yeah. And if you if you don't have the money for the pro, because hmm. they are expensive, do you wait Double the for price? Yeah. Double. Do you wait for next year's MacBook Air if there is one? Oof. No, um, I think there's going to be they'll probably do an update, but it's not going to get like an M1 Max chip in the air or anything mm. like that. Not that I'm anticipating. I mean, there used to be those i7 airs out there. They were actually pretty powerful machines. Mm. So Apple does have a history of putting a big processor in the air, but I just don't see that happening next year, maybe in two years or something like that. Yeah. But uh, not not for a little bit. Yeah, uh, now when the M1 Max iMac comes out, oh boy, oh boy, I don't, my wallet's not quite ready for it. I I already, when did I get this thing? 2017-ish, like the beginning of the year. I said I was going to get five years out of it. So please, Apple, give me a whole nother year before I have to (laughs) spend a lot of money again. Do they even, uh, they even sell the iMac Pro? I don't even see it. They better, uh, no, no, you, they might, that might be off the list. Yeah, it's gone. I think. Yeah, we're all waiting for it to turn into an M1 iMac Pro. Huh. That's right. I forgot that that came off the list. I, it only got like one rev update. Yeah. I think Crazy. maybe two, but I think only one rev. That's weird. It's a good machine, though. So whatever. I It's still more power than I use every day. So I'm mm. fine. Yeah. And, and I do think like, you know, it, it it's a good uh, time to think about if, if you were going to put this machine together is it going to be my next five-year machine? And, and what's that yeah. price worth for you? Where I think when I went in on the MacBook Air, starting at $1,000, I'm like, okay, this is my next two to three-year machine. Uh, and that makes sense to me. I did I did update it, though, a little bit. I did get the... Oh, yeah, the I know. Because I was going to say, like, it starts at 1000 but I paid around 1700 I believe, for mine. And the Pro starts at two grand, So you, you're, you're just at two grand to start. Plus, we wanted that max upgrade. So what was that? Two or four hundred more dollars. There is quite a substantial price difference. If that was my only main machine, I can 100 percent justify uh, that that price and that power. But if it's not, nope, it's just going to be a little portable computer that honestly collects a bit of dust on the shelf. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. All right, cool. Let's get into our topic this week. The hottest of hot, the spicy of spicy, <laughs> the hot reload of the hot reload. You, Frank, were doing a deep dive on your Twitch stream recently, diving into the hot bits of hot reload. And uh, you said you want to talk about the inner workings of hot reload for .NET. Is that correct, Frank? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a little bit of new knowledge for me. But as you know, I have been interested in hot reload by other names for a long time. We used to call it live coding and I used to call it patching and hot patching and whatever. I'm just getting tired of the development loop and I just want to update my code much faster. And I've written all sorts of solutions over the years. Um, In fact, like I went a terrible deep dive into .NET many years ago when I tried to write my first interpreter for it to achieve this. And then later, um, I developed like the continuous IDE add-in. Then I developed continuous 
my IDE for the iPad. Uh, I've been in this space forever, but it never occurred to me to figure out how, how does Microsoft do it? How does the runtime actually do it? How does Mono do it? How does .NET Core, .NET 6 do it? And so on my Twitch stream, yeah, I just dove in and I said, look, I want to learn how I want to learn how this patching stuff works. And what I found was quite interesting. I found out that it's public. This ability for the runtime to change the code is a public feature of the runtime. It's it's in docs.microsoft.com. You can go read about it. Uh, the problem is the docs aren't very good. So a long journey of hacking ensued. And I thought it'd be a fun topic to talk about. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because you were saying that you over the years have built many of things and you and I've worked on many of things together um, <laughs> as well <laughs> in this space. And by by uh, by work together, you did all the work and I didn't do anything. Um, but, um, you know, let's talk about specifically the differences here, because you said that there was an interpreter that you had you had previously and, and you still have like continuous and other things like that. And then there's this patching so how are these fundamentally different mm -hmm. and and what are yeah. the re, re, how what are the re, the side effects of how each of those work you know what i mean right. like there's got to be limitations to different limitations of each an interpreter versus a patching mechanism thing yeah uh we can even put the interpreter on the side for the moment and start with a quick reminder on how dot network works oh there you go how yeah. does dot network <laughs> do 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 <laughs> The magic of .NET. So we get cross-platform code comp uh, execution by a magic trick of not having our code actually be machine-specific. It is IL code. I think we're all pretty familiar with that. So our .DLLs, although they look like Windows things, they are not, in fact, <laughs> Windows things. They just have a bunch of IL code in them. And a very important thing called the metadata, which is uh, all the classes all the fields for classes, all the methods for classes, all the properties, how they relate to each other, all that complicated stuff uh, is there in .NET. So that is roughly called the metadata, and then the code that you actually execute, that's called the IL. So where does all this work? Well, in a, a hot patching system, what you want to do is you have this program running, and you want to make a change. I want to change how a method works or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so what I need to do is communicate to the runtime that that IL has changed. Now, that's easy. Communicating is easy. The hard part is the runtime has to actually implement that change. And that is a tricky thing because, well... Going all the way back, whenever a method executes, we have a JIT. We have to turn it into machine code at some point. So there is a process out there that uh, can convert from IL to machine code and then start executing that machine code. Whether that is a JIT or an interpreter almost doesn't matter. What's important is that we give it new IL and signal to the runtime that the IL has changed. Okay. Okay. So, so there's code in your editor. Is you compile it. Yeah. And you compile that into IL, an intermediate language. And then there's a CLR, common language runtime, yeah. right? That is able to run. So whether you're creating C sharp, F sharp, VB, all those are down into IL. And then the CLR, common language runtime, is able to run that code, that IL, sorry, that IL 
with mm-hmm. the metadata. And then in this case, in most cases, it JITs, just in times compiles that IL into machine code based on where it's running. Or in the case of iOS, it's ahead of time compiled um, as well. Uh, so I'm imagining some, some different things there. Uh, however, in the emulator and simulator, they're JITed. So we'll just say, we'll just leave with a JIT yeah. here because you're in debug mode, right? Is, is that the correct stack that I just described how .NET works? Because that's pretty different from a lot of other uh, programming languages and environments out there. Yeah, yeah. It, it's what makes it special. It's what got me interested in into the um, CLR in the first place. So the important abstraction is, you're correct, the language does not matter because all, all .NET compilers, no matter the language, Python, C-sharp, F-sharp, they all compile into this IL and this metadata, this managed metadata. Mm. That that's the common part of the <laughs> common language runtime. The runtime part is it takes that metadata and has to figure out how to execute it on the machine. Hmm. The AOT, uh, let's kind of ignore it for the moment. But what that does is it acts more like a traditional compiler where it does that first step of converting everything to IL, but then converts it to machine code. Uh, 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 <laughs> before you run it ahead of time. Ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the name. So, you know, what I described is actually a pretty simple process, right? Why don't more programming languages do that? You know, if there's a method out there and there's a method body, then, you know, just go change it. Well, the reason you can't do that in like C is because people who call that method have to have a pointer to that method and they make very specific uh, assumptions about that. So if I ever want to change that method, I can't just go and overwrite it because there might be a version of it executing right now. You get into all sorts of terrible race conditions. So what you have to do is tell every function that's calling that method that there's a new updated version of it. And that's just a mess. You know, mm. n- no one makes good hot patching systems for native code. It's it's just too terrible. It's too fragile. Who knows what's going to happen? But in a managed runtime, it's technically possible because the garbage collector knows what objects are out there. The runtime is able to stop execution if it absolutely needs to. I mean, ideally, it wouldn't stop execution, but it can be smarter about saying, okay, uh, so you want to replace the IL in this method. That's fine, but um, I've already jitted it. I've already converted it to machine code. So now the runtime has to unconvert it from machine code or realistically just throw away the machine code and say, ah, oh, there's a fresh IL version of this. We have to rejit this method. So, you know, you can think of it from a very 10,000 foot point of view. It's a pretty simple process, but things get more complicated, of course. Well, because what you described, right, is that there was already a method and there's contents inside that method that you'd want to, you know, update, right? So, so yeah. I'm assuming that also when this thing happened, I have no idea how any, anything works. I'm just, I'm just a developer, people. I don't know how anything <laughs> works. Um, high level developer here, I should say. I don't know how anything works. And, but there's, there's probably a lot of different entries into, let's say a big, let's say there's a big table. Let's say, you know, that, that stores all the things in an application, right? There's, uh, there's, there's classes, there's properties, there's methods that are on there. There's, um, using, can I interrupt you? Right. Go ahead. 
this is hilarious because I don't know if you were just joking around or not, but the metadata, the IL code is actually stored in tables. Literally, they're, they're called tables and it has like a database kind of schema to it. There are IDs referencing everything. So I just want to give you points if you didn't know that the metadata, your assemblies actually are tables. They are like a tiny little frozen database. So I just want to in- interrupt and say, good job, James. The big V table, if you will. So, um, uh, Yes. Well, well, I I only really know about tables and how things are stored only because of inheritance and abstract and virtual classes and how things work. That was my data structures class. I'm pretty sure my my instructor, Phil Miller, taught me about tables and stuff like that. I forget now, but I do know there's tables in there, Frank, like you said. So there's tables and all things are in a table. So that's good. Um, Yes. So I'm glad I'm glad that 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 I was I was accurate there. So that's yeah. uh, Okay, so they're all in there. And, mm-hmm. and in this instance of of throwing away the the jitted code, it, is it is it different for every single one of those things that are in the table? And like, what happens when you just add new methods and call it from an existing method? Like, does that cascade? Yeah. Is there cascading non oh, yeah. unjit to rejit? <laughs> oh sure, oh sure. So uh, let's call what I just said that method body replacement as code swapping. 101 table stakes like you have to make Mm. that work but consider all the other things you can do to your code (laughs) so delete the method well okay that that doesn't count because then the things that called it won't work so you'll get a compilation error so we can't patch it etc etc so that's fine we can ignore deleting a method but um what about adding a field to an object well that changes the memory structure of every object. Mm. So let's say I want to patch the runtime and say add field to the class string. Now, every string in your app, and there are a lot of them, has to add a field. I don't think you can actually patch string, everyone, so don't try. But uh, imagine that for any other like common object that you have in your program and you add a field to it. Now the runtime has to... like stop the garbage collector and be like, yo, yo, garbage collector. <laughs> Everything has changed. So every object with this um, uh, type or this class type, go out there and rearrange its memory to make room for this field. You know, that's mm. that's tricky business. And then not only that, but um, obviously any new method that references that field, you have to go uh, jit all those. But that, that kind of takes up uh, space in the... Um, you changed a method kind of thing. But yeah, a simple thing like adding a field can do that. Deleting a field, obviously, (laughs) you would have to stop the whole thing because no method that could ever reference that field. But now the big cascading ones are you add a whole new class Mm -hmm. because that's adding fields, adding methods, all that kind of stuff. So does that stuff work? Yeah, <laughs> miraculously. Okay, so uh, the, the that first level that I was describing, kind of swapping out method bodies, that was, uh, what, maybe like 2013 edit and continue was added to Visual Studio. I don't remember my time frame very much, um, but uh, really roughly around them, uh, we, we got that ability. But I think anyone who used it always ran into the frustrations of there were certain code changes that you would make that would just not work. And imagine something like link queries or um, async programming. They actually create types in order to make async await work. And in order to make link work, you have to generate uh, callbacks and Lambda functions and all that 
async creates a whole state machine and that yeah. requires creating types and methods on those types and generics and you know all sorts of crazy stuff and so there were just operations you couldn't make to um method changes because they would end up creating other types out there so that's your terrible cascading problem that used to exist yeah and i remember editing continue and it was a uh weird name because you'd have to like add a breakpoint and then you would try to change something and it was like no and then you have to stop your whole <laughs> application and it was like it just you always oh, like oh i reference this thing but i got to bring in a namespace it's like that's not supported and because it's not in the method right and i think the only thing you could really do is be like okay count plus plus equals now count plus equals two <laughs> and, and then then you would continue ideally but you know in, in the scenario of we're developing i don't necessarily want to always have to add a breakpoint to like change my code and do stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense especially when we were talking about like xaml hot reload which works i'm assuming completely different than actually just like the code part of it uh in general but what i learned from xaml hot reload which is that i want to be able to change all my stuff at all the time and i want this and that and you know i want my state to remain and i want all this other stuff there's a lot of implications there of just a, a dom stack uh in general but uh yeah, so you, so you want method body m method body replacement to to, to work. Yeah. That's the default, right? That we're talking about here. Yeah, and, and you want that to simplify, like you were saying, that that holding of the state, the whole hotness and hot reload and all these kinds of things, is that you can change the background color of a view without changing the text or something that someone has input into it, and that's the tricky part. So in past things that I've made, like XAML previewers and things like that, what I would do is take the XAML string, have the runtime, um, create all the objects for that, and then redisplay it on the screen. The problem is that loses all the state that was there. So what you can do instead is, okay, go through that same process, take a XAML string, inflate a bunch of objects, and then look at the difference between the two and copy <laughs> uh, properties and values over from the old view into the new view. But even that's kind of janky, you know, we, we got it working. <laughs> it works. I, I try to do a little bit of that in my IDE on the iPad. But imagine if we don't actually recreate all the objects, we just modify the objects. Mm. That's so much better. And so XAML is actually a great case in this. It's a great way to compare and contrast because XAML has always had two modes, the way of take a string and create a bunch of objects that's always been supported. But then we got XAML compilation. And that was mostly a feature to make our apps faster at, run, at startup time so that they don't have to do a bunch of parsing. But the, the side effect of that, the benefit of that is, well, if XAML turns into code, and we have this mechanism for updating code, then we can use that same mechanism to update XAML. So it's kind of neat. This XAML preview used to be this kind of an easy trick. <laughs> I, I used to do like a Wii example all the time because it was really easy to write a XAML editor, but you would lose the state all the time. Now by combining XAML compilation and this feature for the runtime to patch itself, we can get much better um, hot reloads of XAML and previews and all that stuff. Got it. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Where it's just not just, oh, here's this string, reproduce it, throw everything away. It, it truly is almost a, a diffing uh, in, in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. 
it literally is a diff. Um, so I, if you'd like, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the details of the runtime, how this happens, because yeah. edit and continue was always a visual studio feature. I never really had access to it. I'm a Mac programmer. I use mono and <laughs> just never really had it. But it turns out that uh, even Mono has had support for the feature is definitely called edit and continue copyright trademark registered Microsoft, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, you know, the ability for the runtime to patch itself has been there for many years. Even Mono has supported some basic features of it and they've added more and more features of it. The problem has always come down to it was never like a public interface. It was never actually available from the runtime. It was just these secret things that debuggers could magically do. That's all changing in .NET 6, and there is, in fact, a public method out there. It's, on, uh, it's, in, <laughs> it's in a class called Metadata Updater, but I'm totally blanking on what namespace that is. It's system.reflection.metadata.metadata.updater. I don't know. Search the docs. It's out there. It's public. And there is a magical function on there called apply update. Hmm. <laughs> And if you give it, and the supply update is kind of hilarious, it just takes a span of bytes. Where do you get these bytes? Who knows, James? <laughs> but if you have these magical bytes and you call this function, the runtime will just update itself. So I want to say that that's, that was kind of a revelatory uh, thing there for me, that there is now a public way for the runtime to modify its own code uh, that any app can take advantage of. So use it wisely, people, but it's it's technically out there and it's technically public. So good luck. So these magical bytes, how did those yeah. note to up who's up who's updating? I guess I guess whatever <laughs> the, the ID or the code editor or the 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 dotnet CLI? Like when you run your app, like how, how does it what's doing the 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 magical bits here? That, that, those were all the questions I had. That, that was the deep dive I had on the Twitch. I had just it's, discovered that function. Where <laughs> is like, it? Who is in the who computer? Who are these is? bytes? What are these bytes? Why are these bytes? <laughs> <laughs> and there's actually um, three sets of bytes, three byte buffers you pass it. Um, so there's a metadata diff, delta diff delta, same difference. <laughs> there is the IL diff delta. And then there is the PDB, the debug information, because all the stuff we've talked about for 25 minutes in this whole episode, I never even mentioned, not only do you have to do all this patching of the actual methods and the, the objects out there and all the metadata, but there's that debug information, you know, Pe mm -hmm. people want to be able to edit and continue and have breakpoints. So you have to do all that stuff. But fortunately, that debug information is optional. So let's ignore that. So where do these magical bytes come from? James, where do all magical bytes come from? Roslyn. Oh, yes, that that uh, the open source uh, magical bits that make uh, C sharp and all the languages work. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Roslyn is uh, Visual, ba Visual Basic and C Sharp. Are there other Roslyn languages out there? No. So F Sharp does not uh, currently partake in the Roslyn, but Roslyn is capable of generating these diffs. And what they are, it turns out those magical bytes, you're going to love this, they're an assembly. <laughs> Just Ooh. an assembly. Hanging yeah. out. Hanging out. It's called a Delta assembly. <laughs> and as the name applies, um, it's actually just what's been added and what's been updated since the last patch. 
So it makes complete sense. If you think about your big C-sharp app with 100 types in it because you love creating classes, you got all that stuff, you've, ex you've compiled that code, it's running somewhere, and it's great. But you've decided to change, uh, you've decided, let's say, add an enum okay, between those. So what the C-sharp compiler does is very intelligently, and it's complicated, we could talk honestly for about... 10 hours about how the C-sharp compiler actually does this, but it sees that all you've done is added an enum. So it creates a brand new assembly that contains just that enum. Mm. Makes sense. And then it turns that assembly into bytes. No big deal there. No compression or anything. It's just there. And then you call that metadata updater dot apply updates. That's all it is. Well, there's a lot more to it, but that's roughly it. So it's just a little assembly that contains just what's been added or modified in your program. Oh, okay, so that, that, that makes some sense. Then, so it's hanging up, and, and these are all these are all just automatically generated. Well, how does it know to generate that? If if you're in debug, you've already compiled. You're not really compiling, though, right? When you do it. Yeah, well, you know, you have a lot of options. So let's just say what it is. So just to repeat myself, what it is, is a diff. How you get that diff is really up to you, how smart okay. you are and all that kind of stuff. So in the case of Roslyn, what Roslyn does is it actually, um, well, it has a few different modes, but it has an analyzer that can take two different syntax trees and go through and figure out, oh, this, this was added, this was removed this etc in the ideal case you would not recompile the whole whole app but in an unideal case you can think of it in simplest terms of yes you could just recompile the whole app <laughs> and then just look at what was added and what was changed mm. but it turns out you know doing that kind of diff can be a little bit expensive so Roslyn's much smarter about keeping track of it starts with one version of the assembly then it knows, okay, I patched it to add these types. And then, oh, they made a third edit. Now they've modified this method, so I'll add that to the patch. Oh, now they've, um, I don't know, added another type. We love adding types. And it'll just keep adding that to the diff. And ideally, it would only be recompiling the parts that actually changed or actually were affected. But unideally, it could always just recompile the whole assembly and then uh, figure out what changed from there. Got it. So that's why if I'm inside of VS, it knows what editor file I change or where I hit save on. Or if I'm doing .NET Watch, it's has a file watcher that is watching the files and it's informing Roslyn that these things change and go create the diff. Yeah, exactly. So Roslyn has on itself a public method. So uh, Roslyn, you, you create um, a project from a project, you can create a compilation of that project, which is all the settings it needs to actually, you know, compile the code. And then once you have a compilation, normally there is a method on it called .emit, and that outputs an assembly. That's the normal way you use Roslyn. Create a project, add a bunch of junk to it, create a compilation, have it compile. <laughs> By junk, I mean code, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> obviously. And then you call .emit, and an assembly plops out. It's great, wonderful. You can even run it on the iPad. <laughs> I love it. But there is an additional method called dot emit difference. Ooh. And that it's a public method. It's out there, everyone. That is the magical method that will um, create these 
uh, delta assemblies, these diffed assemblies, uh-huh. these things that you can then feed to the runtime. So there's a lot of ways to go about it, but so I'm uh, sorry to backstep. What you need is an assembly diff. There's a million ways you can generate it any way that you want. The runtime does not care. Roslyn has a way to do it in C sharp um, by being very clever about uh, edits and things like that. It can actually see, oh, okay, all they did was change a number. Like a function used to say return hello world. Now it says return goodbye world. That's a very small change. It doesn't have to recompile the whole project to figure it out. But that's all available to us as uh, dot emit difference. Hmm. So it's really what what we see is it's the the code editor or CLI or whatever's looking at the files to which already knows how to like bundle up this bundle of code to give it to Roslyn, emit the first thing, watch for changes, emit the other thing, send that over to the runtime. And it can do that when it's debugging and not debugging. How does that mm-hmm. work? Yeah, uh, this used to be a debug only feature, but it's been lit up. Both of the runtimes, I have to tell you. So this metadata updater dot apply updates, it's off by default. It does not work by default. Hmm. Um, probably security reasons. You know, lots of reasons you don't want to have people be able to maybe just be able to do that. Yeah, that makes but sense. But it does not. <laughs> It does not require uh, the de- debugger. So there is a metadata updater dot is supported function that you can call anytime to find out if it's available. What you do is configure the runtimes to enable it. So in the case of uh, .NET Core, .NET 6, whatever you want to call it, uh, there is an environment variable you can set. In the case of Mono, I think it's also an environment variable, but I forgot to look up which one it is. But both Mono and .NET 6 can do this. You turn that feature on. Hmm. But importantly, it's not going to do any communicating. Like you turn that feature on and nothing's going to happen. You can't like connect yes code to it or anything like that. You have to do all that plumbing of communicating, of talking to Roslyn, of um, actually executing the diff and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of communication and hand wrangling and all that, which is taken care of um, by IDEs. So this is not public stuff in the runtime. You know, the runtime supports patching itself. Uh, the Roslyn C-sharp compiler supports emitting differences, but those are your basic building blocks. You have to do all the communication and, you know, hmm. <laughs> data management yourself. Gotcha. And, that, and that's what VS or the dot yeah. watch is doing. Even dot watch is doing the same thing then question mark the CLI. Yeah. Um, I think dot watch is using roughly the same code as VS. They have like slightly different interfaces into it, but mm-hmm. I think that they're both roughly using the same technology. I uh, don't hold me to that. There's nothing, okay. you know, nothing public saying that that's how it has to be how it works because like I said, the, the fundamental building blocks are there. It's just how you take advantage of them. It's really up to you and how you want to do your communications. The problem is that emit difference is a C-sharp feature. I think there's one for Visual Basic also. Mm. I'm not sure what its status is. But it's not something that, you know, is just available for F-sharp. Ah. So there's, you know, F-sharp does not have edit and continue. And the reason it doesn't have edit continue because it doesn't have this sophisticated feature that Roslyn has that's able to output these assembly diffs. 
<laughs> that uh, I, I kind of want to go down a whole th- a rabbit hole of how do how do we make this work for F sharp, but I'll just lay it out. There's a, a couple ways it could be done. So the F sharp compiler's complexity would have to be increased a little bit to where when it's outputting um, an assembly, it has an old assembly to compare to and does the right thing, only does patches and things like that, and then can emit that Delta assembly. So that would be a big change to, say, the F-sharp compiler to make that work. Alternatively, uh, what we've been thinking about in the community is creating just a generic tool that, given a current assembly and given a new assembly, calculates that diff, and then you can just apply that to the runtime. So the downside of that is you're not taking advantage of language smarts and seeing that a minor change should create a minor compilation step. A minor change would still create a full compilation step. The benefit is you could still hot patch a running app. So you would still preserve state and everything. The downside is you would still have to go through a whole compilation step. But it's neat that even the the runtime is providing this building block. It's it's up to us to figure out how to provide it the data it needs to do the work. So the question I have for you then is now that you know how it works and what methods are available, were you able to get this working and continuous? <laughs> like did you <laughs> did you build your own pipeline basically to make this work? Or did you did you get that far down the rabbit hole? No, uh, I did get that far down to the rabbit hole, but I I got far enough to realize uh, I can't really use this for continuous. So there are a few issues in the way here. Number one, I don't really want people patching continuous's code mm. <laughs> while it's <Yeah>. running. Yeah. <laughs> not not a great thing. It already kind of allows a little bit of that, but I don't love it. So there's no real benefit to allowing the IDE itself to be edited. So that's not needed. But then the other big downside is probably none of this works in an AOT scenario, but I want to put a caveat on that. But let's look at the problem. In an AOT scenario, all of our methods are compiled down to native code in the Mm. beginning. They do not, when, when a function calls another function, it doesn't talk to the runtime and say, hey, can you go look up that function for me? I need it. It is native. It has a pointer to that function, and it goes and executes that function. So there, it can't do the same trick that the JIT can do, where the um, anytime a function is called in the JIT, the runtime can hook itself in or poke around and change things up a little bit. In an AOT scenario, that runtime is not there. That's why AOT is so fast in Xamarin. That's why I love AOT. But the downside is without a runtime, there's no way you can do a hot method swap. Hmm. That's the reason I don't think I can use this for continuous. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. But but caveat now, caveat. Uh, if you're running under the interpreter, <laughs> mm. the interpreter absolutely can hot patch. The problem there is I have not in my researches found out if the mono interpreter supports any of this stuff. Because this was pretty a highfalutin, a fancy feature that <laughs> wasn't really needed slash used everywhere. So... Now that it's a more common feature, now that it's coming in .NET 6 and we have these public APIs to it, uh, we might see uh, increases in functionality and things like that. But for the moment, for today, right now, I don't think any of this stuff would work for an iOS app. Maybe for an Android app, pro- definitely for a Windows app, but uh, not for iOS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you were going to try to bundle it into your application, but when you're developing the apps, they're all jitted, oh. so it's okay. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, still on device, though, I think you would still have to run under the interpreter or something because mm. um, even on device, you're, 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 you're compiled to native code, even when you're doing, even during development, even during debug. Now, the simulator that can run the JIT, Mac apps, they can run the JIT, all, all sorts of those scenarios. And who knows? Maybe AOT will get it at some point in the future. Got it. Got it. Now, here's one last question for you here. So how did, how did um, Fabulous work for F-Sharp? Because you were talking about F-Sharp earlier and Don Syme and community and people worked on this, you know, fabulous, um, fabulous, mm-hmm. fabulous library for F-Sharp to build, you know, cross-platform ap- applications with F-Sharp. And they had a hot reload thing in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't say specifically how it works because I haven't read the source code, but I can mm. probably rough out roughly how it worked. The biggest, best benefit of the Elmish architecture, the React ar- architecture, the Fabulous architecture, is that all your data access is kind of centralized. Um, it has a first-class notion of this is the data of the app. This is the state of the app. And because the state of the app is known at all times and it's rooted roughly to one object, (laughs) you can always serialize that object. So when we go to replace code, we don't have to do all this fancy looking around and figuring out what state needs to be preserved and what state doesn't need to be preserved. There is roughly one object out there. (laughs) Serialize that puppy or whatever. Mm. Keep it in memory. You don't even have to serialize it. Leave it in memory. And, you know, spin up that new code and assign that one object over. And then because of the beauty of that architecture, once you assign that one object over, the whole app lights up and restores its own state because all the state is rooted at that one object. It's fancy. I The Elmish architecture is really cool. The fabulous architecture is really cool. I find it a little constraining when actually writing an app, <laughs> but um, for, for big complicated apps, but for form style apps and everything, it's cool. It's cool that the arch- architecture, you know, this has nothing to do with runtimes. This has nothing to do with languages. The architecture supports that capability kind of. Got it. Got it. I want to give a Tim, Timothy is, is also the, the maintainer yeah. over in France. I want to make sure that him and the downside get the get the shout outs there and everyone else that's worked on the project too i don't want to just uh, say that but, you know, <laughs> tim has been on a few xamarin shows and wrote a, some great blog posts on the dotnet blog and xamarin blog about it as well so very cool that's interesting um yep. just yeah all sorts of these technology we're all trying to save we're all trying to achieve the same thing right at the end of the day is we're trying to be more productive code faster you know stop you know having to have the you know, compilation get in your way <laughs> from tweaking code. Like that that's our end goal at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I used to complain that the problems with .NET were the, the speed of the compiler and then the loop that we all get stuck into. Change the color, compile, run the app, close the app, change the color, that loop. We're all just trying to reduce that loop down to nothing. And I used to be jealous of the scripting languages out there because they could... They, they didn't have the compilation step because they're usually interpreted. And so mm. they just light up really fast. So th- that uh, that loop would naturally be shorter. Well, <laughs> now what's really cool is I have a compiled language with a full type system that can communicate with actually multiple kinds of languages. And the runtime itself now supports this feature where I can change actually running code 
like uh, game development. This is going to be wonderful for game development because just, you know, getting into that one scenario into a game for the dev loop is really hard. Instead, you move yourself to the one scenario and then you change all the background colors to your heart's content. So now I feel like .NET, we're getting the best of both worlds. We're getting the speed of not having to go through that compile step anymore. We're getting the speed of not having to restore our own state manual anymore, which is something the scripting languages can't do. But we're also getting all that in a compiled language with a type system and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of awesome. And so congrats to uh, all the runtime people and the compiler people for making this work. Yeah, very cool. I'm super excited about it. I've been using it for quite a while and just bits and pieces coming together. And man, Donet Conf is like, Dude, it's like next week. It's like, well, this episode comes out on the first, oh. and then it's like on the ninth. Oh my gosh! And, and oh. Visual Studio twenty twenty two launching on the eighth too. <laughs> oh my gosh! So many things. I, I I love Visual Studio launches. I hope I hope there's a good Hanselman. I like a good hour of Hanselman walking me through features. But if there's not, I won't be disappointed. I'm just putting it out there, Scott. I, I want my one hour walkthrough. I believe there might be some Hanselman. I mean, no spoilers or inside information, <laughs> but I believe there might be some Hanselman involved uh, in things that week. Not me. I'm not. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be in Redmond. I'm not going to be around. I'm supporting remotely. Let's just say I am working on the keynote for .NET Comp, and I'm very excited about what is being built um, and collaborating on and working on stuff. And so there's some cool. There's some cool bits and pieces that'll be shown off. Not only Hot Reload, like we're talking about here, but there's some, uh, I get to, I get to do a little storytelling. So I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> about that. So anyways, Frank, we did it. We hot reloaded the reload and we rebooted the podcast in a hot reload manner. I, I don't know if it was too hot talking about <laughs> runtime details and all that kind of stuff. So if you made it this far, congratulations, everyone. But I, it was really fun for me. I don't deep dive. I deep dive into the runtime maybe once or twice a year. Mm. And it was just fun for me. And I love how everything is open source now. And I know that's a hot topic. I shouldn't have even said that. But you can <laughs> just go on GitHub and uh, go look at all this stuff and go read it and see how it works. And I just really loved deep diving. And I appreciate you all coming on this little deep dive with me. Yes, I appreciate every single one of our listeners. And you can, you know, give us more listeners. If you have friends that are like, whoa, <laughs> they probably are interested in this content because you made it to that in the episode. You probably know people that would also like this content. So you know, give them a link to the podcast, MergeConflict.fm. Tell them to go into their podcast app, Merge Conflict. What a great name for a podcast. And uh, it would really help us. Of course, if you're also on a podcast app, leave us a review. I know it's been 17 years since this podcast came out, but every <laughs> review matters. And we love every single one of you for being on the journey with us after all these years. And oh my goodness, um, it's just been, it's been an adventure. But uh, I think it's going to do it for this week's podcast. So until next time, I'm James Montsmagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.